Houston, it's rodeo time. Your local Tacova store is the place to go for the finest handmade cowboy boots, jeans, belts, cowboy hats, and apparel for men and women. If you've never owned boots before, let them help you get your first pair like they did for me. Stop by one of your local Houston Tacova stores and get ready for the rodeo with their understated approach to Western. Whether it's your first rodeo or your seasoned pro, your local Tacova store is the place to go for rodeo season. Tacovas, don't go gently. Ever heard of the Blue Helmets? What about the Houston Riots? These pieces of our city's history are ones that seem to get lost or left out of our history books. But with the recent overturning of 110 black soldiers' sentences and it being Black History Month, we figured it would be the perfect time to talk about the history and the impact of Houston's black soldiers. That's why we're bringing on the Buffalo Soldier National Museum's CEO Desmond Bertrand Pitts and the director of exhibits, Cale Carter II, to help us uncover some of the stories that help shape Houston today. It's Thursday, February 15, 2024. I'm Rahil Ramzanali, and here's what Houston's talking about. Desmond, Kale, welcome into CityCast Houston. We're so excited to have y'all on. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing great. Thanks for having us. I'm doing pretty well. Thanks again for having us. Absolutely. So in our February guide earlier this month, we talked about ways to celebrate Black History Month. So before we jump into this awesome conversation we have planned, I want to ask y'all, Desmond, how do you like celebrating Black History Month? Uh, well, you know, my thing with Black History Month is as being a Black person, a Black male, I am Black 365. So I celebrate every day that I wake up. Um, but Black History Month, of course, is is very special um, with, you know, Carter G. Woodson starting uh, the Negro History Week and then it kind of growing into uh, a full month. Uh, I, I'm here at the museum, so I celebrate it. Um, by welcoming guests uh, who want to learn the history that we have to share. Um, but I also do, you know, volunteer work outside of the museum. So I use it as an opportunity for service. How about you, Kale? So, well, when it comes to celebrating Black History Month, I do what I pretty much do every year, basically, not only during Black History Month, but pretty much every other month of the year, which is continuing researching the lesser known stories of Black soldiers and Black military history. Yeah, that's perfect. And you know what? I'm going to ask you this first one because of that research. You know, we always hear about the Buffalo Soldiers and we don't learn about them as much in school, unfortunately. So for our listeners who don't have a good understanding, who are they? So when you hear people say that someone's a Buffalo Soldier, they're really referring to the first professional uh, black American soldiers, meaning that these were the first black soldiers to serve in the regular army and make a career out of serving in the military. Historically speaking, from the American Revolutionary War and even the conference before this country was a country, you had black folks who served. However, it wasn't until after the Civil War where they were allowed to serve in the regular army and make a career out of serving in the military. So normally that's when you, when you hear Buffalo soldiers, that's what people are referring to. And in particular, they're referring to four black regiments. Some will say that they're really referring to the one specific one or two. But in most cases, when they're referring to Buffalo soldiers, they're referring to soldiers that was part of the 9th and 10th Cavalry and the 24th and 25th Infantry Regiment. And 
kind of the era of the Buffalo Soldiers where they start at the end of the Civil War in 1866 when Congress authorized the creation of these units and they last until about 1951 when the last one, the 24th Infantry Regiment, was deactivated during the Korean War. Hey, let's talk about the new exhibit, which focuses on the first African-American combat division to be activated during World War II, the 93rd Infantry Division, but they're also known as the Blue Helmets. What do you want people to know about these men and their service? And what's the big takeaway here for our listeners? There's quite a few takeaways. One of the main takeaways is to, one, understand the history of this unit, because when you talk about Black military history in World War II, the focus tends to go directly towards Tuskegee Airmen. So one of the main focuses of this exhibition is to one, get the story of the 93rd out there and get the story of their accomplishments out there. But in addition, one of the other main goals by doing this exhibition is to try to encourage people to do more research into the division itself. So mm. up to this point, this when creating this exhibition, this was essentially kind of a mixture of years of personal research, as well as collaborations with people within the staff of the museum, particularly Dr. Tovar and Jason Fong, who's our archivist. However, there's still some gaps in that information that we have yet to access. And so the idea behind getting the exhibition created is to one, try to clear up some misconceptions about the 93rd in terms of what they actually did in the Pacific and like what was their role. But then the core one is to, again, try to encourage people to learn about the unit and Mm -hmm. what these soldiers did in the war and then after, more importantly. How long did it take for their service to be recognized? You still mentioned we're still doing it. We're still getting more knowledge about what happened. But, you know, how long did it initially take? I'll put it this way. In terms of recognition, I would say really didn't start really getting out there until about 2008 when a Dr. Robert Jeff- F. Jefferson wrote a book called Fighting for Hope, the story of the 93rd Infantry Division of World War II. So that was 2008. But again, like the book that he wrote kind of got the story started. But by and large, their story really didn't get to, shall we say, kind of a, a popular culture, po- culture aspect. So their story is still relatively unknown they're still really not recognized just yet like because when you say recognize normally people would assume they're recognized oh it's tuskegee airmore people you can walk to someone on the street and they understand and in the case of the 93rd like you really can't walk up to anybody just yet and say oh do you know who this unit is they will say oh well i may but i don't yeah as ceo of the museum desmond how important is it that these stories are told at the museum and how hard is it to you know, decide amongst all these thousands of stories that are so important to be told, like you pick this one. How hard is that? Knowing that the museum was founded on the simple fact that African-Americans in the military just don't get their due justice in terms of their stories being out there. Um, It's continued on in my leadership. And when Kel came on, and he's only been there a year, uh, and this is actually his first exhibition, that's the conversation that we that we had. And he sent me, after that conversation, he sent me like a full two pages of ideas that he had been, you know, researching and already thinking about. Did you know about the blue helmets before Kale told you, Desmond? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was <laughs> like, so too on the job. Yeah, um, absolutely learning. And, and you know, I learn every day that I'm here. And the listeners will also go through that process of learning not only about the blue helmets, but 
just the Buffalo Soldiers in general and like how important they are to our history here. So I, I love that. Kale, tell me about what happened at Camp Logan because towards the end of 2023, there was the overturning of the convictions of 110 black soldiers who were involved in the 1917 Houston riot at Camp Logan. Set the stage for me. What happened during this riot? So prior to the actual date of the riot, there was a series of events that started when the 24th Infantry Regiment was transferred to Houston to help and oversee the construction of Camp Logan. So again, with some historical context, when these soldiers came from their previous post to Houston, Texas, while they had to deal with racism at their previous locations, the racism in Houston was different because you're talking about not just the 24th, but other black regiments who was basically being geared up for service in World War I that were coming from other areas and coming to the Deep South had to basically encounter like stiff Jim Crow law. So when you talk about the 24th arriving in Houston, there was a series of incidences that involved mostly clashes between the soldiers and the local Houston Police Department, and they come to a head on August 23rd, 1917. So a series of events happen, and one of the soldiers in the 24th is badly beaten and thrown in jail. Word gets back to the post that the soldier was killed. And by this point, as I mentioned before, there's been a series of incidences that was occurring kind of back to back. And this led to the soldiers essentially saying, we had enough of this. We're going to basically march into town and we're going to attack anyone who looks like an HPD officer because we're tired of this. We've tried to go through proper channels. However, nothing seems to get done. So we're going to basically take matters into our own hands and address it as best we can. And even though... The initial confusion about the guy being killed, the commanding officers and officers trying to say, okay, well, this gentleman's he's still alive, he's here. By that point, frustrations boiled over and it led to some of the soldiers initially thinking it was coming under attack from armed Houston civilians and armed and armed HPD officers. But then after that, some of the soldiers, after the perception of an initial attack, basically decided to march in the town to take the fight to the HPD officers. And it led to cases where the soldiers basically fired on both HPD officers as well as civilians. And ultimately what ends up happening is that among the people who are killed was a military officer from the an Illinois National Guard unit that tried to basically intercede as well. And pretty much after that, the riot itself ended and it led to the trial of 64 members of the 3rd Battalion, 24th Infantry Regiment for basically having a mutiny in time of war, which, of course, a mutiny in the time of war carries the penalty of deaths. Mm. So 64 soldiers were then executed? Uh, 64 members were tried, and initially there was a group of 13 that were executed. So the, the riot itself takes place in August of 1917, and by December 1917, the first group, which was initially a group of 13, were executed. Now, mm. there was some concerns both in the black press and in other circles about the speed of the trial because with the trial, there was some concerns about the evidence that was being brought up. There was some things that weren't really clarified. Some of the soldiers who were in that initial group, initial batch of that being executed, some of them fully admitted to participating in the riot, but you had others who 
basically, in some cases, it really wasn't clarified if they actually participated or not. Some soldiers that were put on trial, they were kind of put on trial in the sense where it's like, okay, well, who did it? If you tell us who did it, we'll let you go. And it led mm. to cases where you had some soldiers who literally had nothing to do with it at all, or people couldn't really verify to say, hey, this guy was directly involved. We couldn't verify if he actually went with the group or stayed in camp. It led to some of those guys getting swept up and tried and even executed as well. So wow. after that initial group of 13 were hung, it led to basically calls for executive review. They said, hey, we have to try to go through and make sure that the people that we're trying are without a doubt innocent or without a doubt guilty. But then there was another group that were executed as well. So initially 118 soldiers were indicted. So can you tell me what happened to the other 40 soldiers who weren't sentenced to mutiny or executed? So some soldiers served a variety of sentences. Some had as many as 30 years in prison. Some had lighter sentences. And there was some, like literally there was some soldiers that after they were arrested, and they basically served their time, like they pretty much got out in the 1930s. And I think that was one case, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he actually committed suicide after he was released because oh. pretty much by that point, like when you're serving in the military, like a lot of these guys, when when they were caught up in this, they was in their late teens, early 20s. Like some, And some of these guys, their career was serving in the military. So when you go yeah. from basically having a, a promising career in the military and not only the promising career of the military, but also the benefits that come with military service, like honorable discharge, pensions. When all that gets taken away, what ends up happening, well, in the case of one of the gentlemen, he literally felt he had nothing to live for and he committed suicide after. So, like, oh even though we tend to focus on the people who were executed, the overall story itself is a tragedy because you're not just talking about the group of soldiers that were executed, but you're talking about a group of soldiers' lives who were drastically altered after yeah. that event in 1917. Hey, Kale, so why did it take so long for their convictions to be overturned, by the way? Now, honestly, it's going to be probably difficult to answer because when you talk about military bureaucracy, there's a lot of stuff to it. But the other part of why it took so long was that it took basically years and years of advocacy research to essentially prove the men's innocence or at least call into question the effect of what was used to convict these men. Yeah. And let's talk about their families, right? Like how significant was this decision? And, you know, what does it mean for their descendants of these soldiers? What does it mean for black soldiers serving the military today? You know, particularly those in Houston, Desmond. So one of the descendants is she's like family. To me, um, I actually she actually watched me grow up. Professor Angela Holder, her uncle, uh, was one of these gentlemen. And on November thirteenth of last year, I sat right behind her, and she was so emotional because she actually led the charge for what happened on November thirteenth. Like she had been working twenty plus years to see this day and never thought that she would live to see it happen. Um, and so I think just knowing that she was here to relish in the moment, to experience it, was enough for her. And, and the overturn, you know, conviction, of course, is what the, the intent was, uh, but also knowing that the gravestones would be, um, you know, properly done and 
there's some back pay that's also going to you know come to the families. None of that even mattered. It's just the fact that she was there in that moment to see that happen, something that she had worked on for years. Um, and, and one of uh, the other descendants, uh, Jason Holt, uh, who was also there sitting next to her, they were holding hands. And, you know, I, I was listening to what was going on. But the fact that I knew these two people and I've watched them work and I've watched them have conversations and, um, you know, do interviews like this, talking about their story. Uh, it was just a very, very emotional moment. And, and what what is to come of that, I hope, is just a sense of acknowledgement. Like, why do we have to get to a point of the U.S. Army making it a big thing and it's global now um, rather than in, in reverse? How is the museum honoring these men now? So we ha- we actually have a year-round uh, exhibition for uh, Camp Logan, and Professor Holder is actually the one who curated that. Uh, and what we're actually working on uh, exhibition planning uh, to change our entire exhibit. So we're we're incorporating Camp Logan in a very specific space and a specific way, and we're working with partners to uh, do a better job in in showcasing this story and making sure that the soldiers are uh, get their proper. Uh, proper due here. With the planned exhibition updates, we also want to not only include the Houston riot, but place it in the greater context of what was going on during that period and also its impacts after. So one of the things that we tend to talk about, especially when we talk about the Houston riot, we talk about the immediate effects in terms of the soldiers themselves and like the, the legacy of the soldiers and their families, but we don't really talk about cover or how what happened impacts other black soldiers in World War One. And case in point, like I'm a South Carolinian, like so initially in case of South Carolina, we don't really hear about the Houston riot, but the connection to it is that pretty much after it happens, anytime a black unit that was preparing to go overseas came to the deep south in World War One, especially after the Houston riot, southern towns or cities will pretty much would be immediately paranoid because the fear was that well, these soldiers did this in Houston. They saw it more so like them reacting to the law and order of the Deep South. So the fear was that, well, if these guys are doing it here, who's to say it can't happen in my hometown or it can't happen in this mm. town? So talking about stuff like that, the connected to the Houston riots, but even talking about the thing that led to it that was on the soldiers' minds, like the St. Louis, St. Louis massacre or the, uh, the Atlanta massacre. So like stuff like that, that kind of helped build up to it again to try to get that whole yeah. picture of what the soldiers were dealing with before they got to Houston and also what they dealt with on the personal level after, but then also what, what was the grander impact of what happened here during that period and even tying it to the Red Summer in 1919 when the veterans were coming back and literally getting lynched because the, the concern was that while well, these soldiers these black soldiers who we expect to stay in place are not going to stay in place no more. So that's one of the things we want to do when when we update the exhibition is to try to add that grander context so people have a better understanding of the impacts of it, both short-term and long-term. Yeah, I can't wait to see the updated exhibit and learn even more about the greater context. So are there any other cases that you'd like to see taken with corrective action by the U.S. military? You know, is this just the beginning of past wrongs being righted? 
honestly, I hope so. Because there's literally quite a few cases out there. But one of them that comes to mind I would like to see done is when you see a lot of cases of Black veterans, not only in World War II, but as late as Vietnam, and dare I say some can say even up to today, where you have soldiers who, and especially in the case of World War II, were entitled to GI Bill benefits, low interest home loans and stuff like that, and they were denied access to it for various reasons. Well, that's something I would like to see addressed. And the reason why is because when we tend to think about the GI Bill, we tend to think about it from the perspective like, okay, well, that's just an immediate benefit for that veteran rather than a generational benefit for those families. Well, what happens when you talk about like black veterans getting locked out of the GI Bill or not being able to use it properly? Well, that that impacts the ability to buy a home. Well, in terms of impacting Mm -hmm. the ability to buy a home, that means that you can't accrue generational wealth. And so when you talk about that and you look at now, we talk about the, well, the racial wealth gap. Well, people are like, oh, well, why is the racial wealth gap the way it is? Well, there's a systemic policies that have systemically failed not only black veterans, but a lot of families of these veterans over the years. Desmond, any final thoughts? And also just how important is the museum in helping getting the word out about you know, some of these stories and then also advocating for those soldiers and their families. Yeah, I think, you know, the difficult situation that we've been put in, in terms of the educational system, we have become the center of sharing those stories. Like we have to do more. We have to be more present. Uh, We have to be more aware. We have to make sure that we're fact-checking and being the most knowledgeable center of, of, of these stories and uh, these things that have, that have occurred, um, because moving forward, I mean, people are going to rely on us, right? And mm-hmm. so, for me, it's it's really important that we stay on the forefront um, and become that that place that people go to. That's awesome to hear. It's right here in the city of Houston, and you know, it's uh, it's an amazing place. And I hope listeners go check it out. Desmond, Kale, thank y'all so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us as well. You can get ticket information and hours for the museum in our show notes. That will do it for today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new. 